Hello and welcome to the third episode of Cheeky Volley. Right now we got on, uh, come here, what Seinfeld episode are we watching? The Kiss Hello. What, uh, what happens in the Kiss Hello? So in their apartment building, uh, I think it's on West 81st Street, um, on the community board, Cranberry decides to put the names of everyone. So Jerry's name is up on the board and all the women in the building keep uh, coming up to him and giving him a kiss hello when they want to talk to him. And he feels like it's getting excessive and kind of uh, invading his personal space. What is it? It's like a side cheek kiss? What kind of kiss? It's like a side cheek kiss. Is it a cheeky kiss? Yeah, pretty cheeky. You think, uh, what, how do you think Roger Federer would feel about the cheek kiss? He's, he's into it. He's into he's it. He's a double, double, double cheek kiss. Very European. He's going side to side? Yeah. You ever think he'd get uncomfortable with it? Uh, maybe a little bit. I think he's into it. All right, all right. Lots to talk about today. First, uh, women's final just finished. And so we got to talk about Serena and Osaka. Um, uh, Naomi Osaka wins the women's title, but not without some controversy. Um, and then we've got uh, match recaps from the semifinals and the uh, men's finals preview. Um, but first. Cheeky volley. I'm playing my idol. Verbal abuse. Default, Mr. Mackerel. Game set match. Um, all right, so the Serena match. First off, Osaka has a huge tournament, comes in 20 years old. The entire tournament is posting crazy score lines. Yeah, so given her score lines, did we, did we really think she was going to lose this? I think a lot of people, like, a lot of stuff I was listening to, people were saying that, were saying they thought she would win, but they thought it would be, like, three sets. No, that's true. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it, it should have been three, but I think she was fair. I think she's too quick, and she's, she's clearly just in the zone. Winning this level... She dropped one set to the final? She dropped one set, and so her one set was against Sabalenka, but all the other matches were hitter. like yeah. rounds. So she beat... I think three, three bagels on the way? Six had, love sets? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, round of 32, she beats Sasnovich 6-0-6-0. Round, the first round, she won 6-2-6-0. Nice, man. Round of 32. <laughs> nice. <laughs> then, uh, what else? Quarterfinal, 1-1, one one, 6-1-6-1. Madison Keys, who... I think some people thought could have won the tournament. Big hitter. Beat her pretty easily, 6-2, 6-4. Uh, and then comes in and beats Serena also pretty handedly. Again, I think, I think the scoreline, too, against Madison Keys is pretty impressive because it shows that Osaka is not just a counterpuncher, but she mm-hmm. can turn defense to offense real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think some players easily hit this. Like maybe, maybe they counterpunch well, but Madison Keys just kind of throws them off the court because when she's in the zone, she can just blow you off the court. But for her to pull it off in straight sets... Keys is definitely a bigger player than her. Um, pretty impressive. And it also seems like Osaka and Keys have sh- like have shown a kind of new era of women's tennis. That there's a time when only Serena was hitting that big, maybe Sharapova too. Yeah. But there wasn't that many women on the tour that were hitting that big. But now you have Osaka the whole tournament hitting serves like close to 120. Yeah. Which is like some ten years ago, there was very few women on the tour that were hitting 120 miles an hour serves. Big right. Hitting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of ways to talk about the uh, what happened in the. Osaka Serena match. Um, it's kind of blown up in the press. Uh, I also think because it happened 
in the finals, you have a lot of people who don't necessarily watch a lot of tennis with very strong opinions about what happened. Um, and so not to throw shade, but kind of throwing shade. Um, but anyways, we're going to talk about it from two angles. One, we want to talk about on-court coaching because that's something that has uh, we've seen throughout the tournament and it has always been an issue that hasn't really been addressed and it seems like it came to the fore at uh, maybe not the best time. And then the second thing we want to talk about is um, is kind of the the how there's these different chair umpires that have their own uh, sort of interpretations of the rules. And we've seen in this tournament, we've seen two of the most respected, but also uh, chair umpires with the most distinctive personalities um, be sort of thrown into controversy. So Muhammad Layani, we saw that in the uh, with the Kyrgios event. So I think it was just before the U.S. Open. Right? No, 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 right. No, was, Kyrgios yeah, is... Second round. Second round U.S. Open, you're right. Second round U.S. Open, Kyrgios was about to lose, or he, he loses the first set. He's playing, like, garbage. Mohamed Leani comes over and says something to him. Um, some people said it wasn't coaching. Some people said it was. Either way, they say umpires should not be able to do that. Mohamed Leani's job was potentially on the line. We still don't entirely know how that's going to unfold. Um, and, then, and then we see this with Serena with another umpire, Sergio Ramos. Um, and then we also have one, a third umpire. Carlos Ramos. Or, sorry, Car- Carlos Ramos. <laughs> Wait, who's Sergio Ramos? Someone else. I'm, I'm, that, someone else that's in, that's in really tennis. That's a familiar name. I don't know. Who, is it maybe someone in Nadal's coaching camp. I think, yeah, okay. Oh, no. Sergio Ramos is a so- Spanish soccer player. <laughs> all right. Um, so we got Carlos Ramos. Um, all right. So first, Kabir, can you profile the three um, three, three umpires that are sort of maybe yeah. the most famous but, and have the most distinct personalities? Before we get into the profiles, do we want to quickly talk about the sequence of events that happened? Do we want to get into this first? Oh, yeah, okay, so the sequence of events. Sequence of events is the following. Serena, uh, Serena's coach, Patrick Moritoglu, is seen by the chair umpire giving some kind of hand gesture that wasn't on air uh, that was interpreted as coaching. Serena is notorious for not even taking on-court coaching in... Uh, so in, in on the WTA tour, outside of Grand Slams, you can call your coach to the match, I think, once a set. And I think she, according never to the records, she has, she's never done it. Mm-hmm. Or very, very few times, but she's not known at all for calling the coach. So she was particularly sensitive to the issue. Sensitive to the issue. Grand Slam match. You know, you're trying to win a tournament after all she's been through. She was very adamant about, look, I don't cheat. And she interpreted it, she, she interpreted the allegation, the call as cheating. Um, which, by the rules, if you are getting encore coaching, it is cheating, but everyone is getting encore coaching. Um, we saw it throughout the tournament with, especially Nadal, they kept saying in the last match, oh, he keeps looking at his box, it was on air, perhaps even the fact that it was on TV so much that they kept saying, like, Nadal keeps looking at his box, made it so the U.S. Open had more pressure to make a call this match. Um, and it's a whole other discussion of what constitutes on-court coaching. We've seen so many times coaches hold up certain water balls to the player, signaling, you know, drink this fluid instead of that one. I remember a hilarious moment in U.S. Open a couple years ago, maybe a decade ago, Sharapova's dad stands up and emphatically raises a banana over his head, telling her to eat a banana. Is that See, on-court coaching? I feel like the banana is the most egregious violation it of on-court coaching. It kind of is. Unless, of course, you hold up an apple. Yeah. But, um, um, so, so anyway, there's this is, this is this discussion that has been brewing for a while. And so the sequence of events. Okay, so she gets a... Um, 
a warning, a, a code violation. Code violation. And the thing for, with for on court coaching. coaching. And the thing with on court coaching is it's a higher offense than, for example, first smashing your racket. So what that means is that after getting a code violation for on court coaching, any other offense would result in a point penalty. And it sounds like based on sequence of events and kind of the words are exchanged, if you don't know if she knew that or if it was properly conveyed, uh, conveyed to Serena. But um, a game or two later, she broke a racket, which resulted in a point penalty. She started the next game, not realizing she was already down love 15. Words were exchanged. She loses the game. Next game over the changeover, the kind of rife between Serena and Carlos Ramos continues. A lot of discussion about um, you know, how there, weren't, there were no signals and how she wasn't cheating. And she eventually called him a thief which resulted in a verbal abuse offense and a game penalty. It does seem strange for being called a thief to be considered verbal abuse, but if you look at the ITF rulebook, they do define verbal abuse as a line, a statement that would suggest dishonesty about the umpire. So this clearly did suggest that. Um, so under the rulebook, it is verbal abuse, but I guess the main okay, question so, here and, is... Well, oh, continue. So the, the main question here is... And, We've seen on-court coaching for so many years Wait, I throughout think, the tournament. I think to start, though... Mortoglu? No, I think we should start with... Um, because it seems like uh, Carlos Ramos, the umpire, has a really strict interpretation of the rules. Yeah. And so... Well, just so one, one time before, right after the match, Pam Shriver interviewed Mortoglu. She says, can you... You know, this is... Lots going on. Tell us what happened. And I was surprised to see what he said. He starts off by saying, okay, let me be honest, I was coaching. Osaka's coach was coaching the whole time. This happens all the time. Carlos Ramos has chaired many other matches of Nadal in the final, where Tony Nadal is coaching during Uncle matches. Tony. So I don't know why it was called today. So that's another question of why do you leave it for a Grand Slam match? But I think it's a really important point to bring up here that people wouldn't know unless you really watch a lot of tennis is that Carlos Ramos is pretty much known as one of the strictest umpires on the tour. Meaning they, he's going to have the strictest interpretation of the rules. Right. Given the rule book, the umpires at the end of the day do have some latitude in terms of how they want to enforce it. Do they want to give warnings or do they actually want to just, you know, like he did today, uh, yesterday, do they want to just give out the code violation as soon as they see They're kind of like the Supreme sign. Court judges of tennis. They yeah, have definitely. like, they have no. their own interpretation of the rules that's filtered by their own politics and their own history with the sport. And, and so in this situation... What we had is, it seems like there was more and more talk about how something had to be addressed with encore coaching, and then you have perhaps the strictest chair umpire in the game sitting in the chair. And so let's talk about also well, real quick the different umpires. So mm -hmm. some of the three biggest ones we talked about: Mohamed Lani, Fergus Murphy, Carlos Ramos. Fergus Murphy has definitely see some of the match, see the highlights, see the interviews. He has been he's known as an umpire who gets on the nerves of Federer. Murray, I think Djokovic as well. Um, for example, you know, if you're taking too long in between points, this was prior to the serve clock, there was still a general way of enforcing it, he wouldn't give you a warning. He'd just call you out on it right away. They would say, look, I need a warning. You have to tell me I'm playing a match. I'm in, you know, I'm trying to win a match. I'm not necessarily thinking how many seconds I'm taking between the serves. I need a warning. Fergus Murphy doesn't think so. Um, Mohamed Layani, on the, other, on the other hand, is an umpire who will give you a warning if... I mean, he'll give you a warning for anything. If it's coaching, he'll say, look, Rafa, you know, your box is communicating a lot. This is a warning. I'm going to have to call. I'm going to give you a violation. I've seen him do it to Djokovic. Um, 
other hand, you have Carlos Ramos. You know, Nadal has been vocal about this too. They've had matches where Ramos has been very adamant on calling him out for on-court coaching. So this isn't an isolated event. It's just that this did happen in a Grand Slam final. I do think that it's a whole other question of should he give a warning? Probably Grand Slam final. You know, maybe give a warning instead of just right away in one of the most tense moments of the match, you know, dish out um, code violation. But I think that the, given the different umpires, the different, you know, style of enforcing rules, I think explains this and puts it into context um, somewhat. And I think another part that this kind of brings up is, um, so this tournament, the U.S. Open this year, it's the first time we've seen the service clock, which by most measures was, I think, a success. Um, you've got players like Nadal that are notorious for taking like 40 seconds between points and bouncing the ball 20 some odd times. Um, you can he, see they're still getting adjusted to it. Djokovic got a number of warnings um, mm-hmm. this year for taking too long. But that was established before the tournament started and there, haven't, there hasn't been any kind of like crazy outburst because of it. But here they left it to a weird kind of interpretation and uh, having this a really strict umpire in the chair – in uh in the Grand Slam finals when Serena Williams is playing. So again, with her playing, it's gonna attract a lot more viewers anyways. Mm-hmm. Um and she probably has the most she might have more tennis fans, at least in the US, than any men's or women's player. Oh yeah. Um and so biggest one biggest athlete in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And so uh you kind of had all these different events converging together. Um okay so that I think that that does it for the uh talking about the different chair umpires. So next we want to talk about what is the future of on-court coaching and what are the implications of this event. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely I mean definitely something that has been in the I air. I think in the air of you know to what extent should on-court coaching being allowed be allowed? Um, McEnroe, Billie Jean King have been vocal about getting somehow incorporating this into the sport. How I don't know. Maybe it's pure Davis Cup style where your coach sits with you on the changeover. That would make it pretty exciting, but. But it also it, takes it, away an interesting the, element of the game because in the in the press conference afterwards, you, you saw Serena talk about how one of her favorite parts about tennis, and it really is, I think... The solitary the, nature of it. Yeah, one of the most unique parts of the sport is you have this one person sitting out there yeah. who has to make des- decisions and solve problems. You're out there in for the how many hours with, you know, you, you figure it out on your own. So I don't... And, I'm, and I'm not also, saying I'm completely in favor of having on-court coaching. But, but I think an important part to think when you think about this is like, at this level... On-court coaching is, I think, less effective in terms of being like, all right, you know, you got to so go more to her forehand, go more to her backhand. The most important, I think the most important thing on-court coaching can do is help players psychologically stay cool, calm and collected can, on the court. And so... I have a unique anecdote here. So while ball boying at the Miami Open, I was, I, I did it for five years and for a few of those years, they had just implemented the rule. So when I was in between changeovers, either holding an umbrella for a WTA player or standing by the net, when the coach would come over, I had the privilege of hearing the whole conversation. And the thing that shocked me the most is how basic the advice is. Middle of the moment, coach comes out for two to three minutes. Oftentimes, it's just, you know, focus on your first serve. Don't give up. You beat her before. Look, you need to move in more on break points. Don't let her dictate the points. It's It's not as technical advice. It's kind of just... Yeah, exactly. Because you, you can't change your game plan in the middle of the match. You really, but can't it seems like the most thing much. they could do is like you know you gotta like you're still in this match even when you're down, etc. And so 
I think the other thing some that's matches, getting... maybe yes. Like there's a glaring mistake the players made. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just, they just need to be aware of it. They can change. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it could happen. But maybe like you forgot to wear your tube socks today. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I think that's going to do it for our our wrap up of this kind of this event. There's a lot to play out in the in the next few weeks, and we we look forward to talking about it. Um, Definitely going to follow it and see uh, if this leads to any discussions of rule book changes. Um, but then I think one thing we didn't talk about is this was a racket smash, a pretty interesting racket bracket break. Yeah, it was perhaps a good one. it was a good one. Perhaps. Well, we don't know if it's the best racket smash to ever happen. It it probably has the most implications of any racket smash oh, in yeah. the history of, of tennis. The most, the most contra- well, the most monumental, the, you know, the most impactful smash. racket most impactful. smash. Yeah. So it might even change the sport a little bit. So come here first. What are you, what's your favorite? Like who who cracks rackets the best? Djokovic. No one smashes racket like Djokovic. Full body smash. Is it like he, he cracks like, it in one swoop or he just keeps going so at it? So he cracks it in one swoop and then to really, you know, drive home the point that he's angry, he smashes it about four or five times. Really, To the point where the only thing holding the racket together is the strings. Yeah. I mean, he completely severs the racket. What about like a Safin smash? His are really good too. Murad Safin yeah, probably yeah. broke a thousand prestiges in a... He's got kind of strong lap muscles from like he does a lot yeah, of pull-ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just yeah, does yeah. yoga and pull-ups. And he's gluten-free. And gluten-free. Um... <laughs> So, short plug for Djokovic's diet. But, uh, okay, tangent aside, I'm sure if you go through the uh, the kind of annals of tennis history, you can find something that John McEnroe did that mm. changed the course of a match. Um, I think but in, nice. the final point we'd like to make is this match does uh, kind of bring up the issue that if, if the women's matches were five sets... Uh, this kind of like an error in judgment on the part of the empire on the part of the player becomes less of an issue when there's still possibly three sets to go. Serena's down one set to love about to go down. She goes down five, three because of the violation. And now there's very little she can do to come back. Even if she, she really, uh, there's just less room for her to come back. Um, so it is interesting to think about, uh, the implications of this. If, if it was a five set match. All right. Uh, so next up we've got, Men, so quick review of the semifinals. We've got uh, Del Potro and Adal match. People are, I think, tennis fans are really excited for. Sort of a reverse scenario of what happened last year, where uh, Del Potro goes in after playing a really long match. Was it last year he played better? Was the long match? It was uh, better. I mean, it was a tough match with four sets. I, don't, I think it was. But didn't four. he have? Did he have another longer match before too? I feel like he had a he had a pretty grueling tournament last year where he was playing great. Yeah. But then this year, he's been cruising, mm-hmm. gets Nadal, he's well-rested. Nadal just came off of playing probably Dominic Team's best match that you've ever seen. I think a match that is as physical as it gets. Four, mm-hmm. four hours, 49 minutes on a hard court is, I think, even more grueling than a clay court. Uh-huh. It's just so tough on I mean, you're knees. running on pavement for five yeah, hours until 2 a.m. too. Someone who is cr- – I mean, I d- the way Team was hitting the ball is as hard as it gets. Mm-hmm. He, that's as big as someone can hit the ball. And he like forced Nadal to turn it on, which was a yeah, is a big deal. So I, I mean, so going to this match, I thought you can't imagine Nadal is not going to be tired. Obviously, he's he's superhuman, but um, I, uh, you know, maybe not surprised he retired because you know he has that knee issue, flares up at the end of the year, played five hours, maybe it's expected, but um, you know, disappointed. It's always tough to see a player get injured. And, and he also he said that he did not feel it at all in the team match. Yeah. 
um, and it's you know hopefully this is just kind of a I'm not a routine injury but something that's manageable I mean I guess tendonitis is chronic and it flares up sometimes and it sounds like his team knows how to manage it so hopefully it's something that he bounces back in a couple of weeks and it's not something more you know devastating that takes him out to but Australian I mean, he's, Open he's battled injuries the last few years this is kind of the trend it's every every year he plays towards the end of the year around US Open or post US Open is when his body starts to really and demonstrate kinda, fatigue I feel like you sort of wonder uh, Federer's already done this where he's not playing the French I, it might be time as Nadal's career to play three Grand Slams. So there's been Jim Corey has talked about this. Where apparently like end there's his, been end his season no, after the French. So the, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it could be. There's, so be there, apparently there's been a lot of discussion in Nadal's team about him phasing out grass. So I think grass you would think is you Soft. know, softer on the feet, but actually grass since the ball skates and stays low, you have to get lower to the ground, so bending your knees more. And apparently that gives his knees a lot of issue. I feel like the main thing is he stopped wearing clam diggers, the the three quarter pants. Yeah. And once he stopped doing that, he was no longer able to. Uh, I think his knees started hurting. Yeah. Um, I think that one we'll have to check with our uh, our physical. We have a physical yeah, yeah, trainer yeah. on site here at yeah, Cheeky Valley. Yeah, yeah. um, um, so no, that could be maybe, maybe the next couple of years. You, know, you see Fed not playing clay, and you see Nadal not playing grass. I mean, doesn't have anything else to prove. I mean, maybe, what, maybe for Fed the for When was the last time Fed played? Play? 2016. Yeah, so he hasn't played it for a few years. Um, and that way they can extend their careers. I'm still of the thought that Federer and Nadal, next couple of years, decide to retire, just play doubles together, win every grand, doubles Grand Slam. I'm into that. I'm into that. And then definitively, or just if Federer you have that retires? many doubles titles, there's no one that could argue that they're – like if one – let's say just one of them does it, they I think they solidify themselves as the GOAT. Oh, yeah. If you go no, – no, yeah. no, If you're I like, agree, okay, agree. I'm going to spend the year playing doubles tournaments, you win – all, every doubles tournament okay, in one year. Or, or, I, I, or, okay, or, Federer and Nadal both retire. Federer becomes Warinka's coach. Nadal becomes his physio. But Warinka's going to retire soon, too. He's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe they get behind, like, a just kind of a weird player, like a... What, what K- was Kukushkin? It? Yeah, like, they all <laughs> get behind Kukushkin. Get on the Kukushkin train. If you... How would Kukushkin's if, wife think? Because she's, she's his coach. So if you haven't... I hope anyone out there, we, we talked about Kukushkin in the first episode. Please check out Kukushkin's backhand. Yeah. It's, it's the honestly, most surreal shot. You can't, you couldn't teach the shot. He hits Back a two handed back, backhand that looks like, like there's no, I don't, the physics of hitting a two handed backhand with like a low to high stroke that ends up as backspin is, uh, is becoming like a, a major question in the physics world. Maybe right now. next US Open, we get him on for an episode, maybe a video episode to show us the, and his, again, his coach technique. is his wife. So he goes home. He has, or he has a terrible day on court. They go home. They have dinner together, and they talk about Can his game. And maybe do you, worlds do you collide. Think, do you think she would do the uh, the um, what's the the Seinfeld episode is about the the cheek kiss? What is it? The kiss hello. The kiss hello. What do you think their kiss hello is like? Yeah, your yeah. coach is your uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No barrier. Kiss hello. No barriers. Interesting. No separation between personal life and professional life. It's sort of, it's either the dream or the nightmare. But anyways. Next match. Get on the Kukushkin train. All right, so. Jo- oh, wait, hold on. One last thing I want to say about Nadal that I learned this tournament. Before Nadal came into the tournament, he, like, uh, he goes through, uh, did he, he played a number of the U.S. Open Series tournaments, right? Um, he played Cincinnati and. At least a few of them. So he had a summer where he's playing tournaments. Yeah. Did he play Cincinnati? I don't even recall. Yeah. So he wasn't home training in Mallorca, but apparently Nadal, before the tournament, wanted to relax. He goes to, I think, the Bahamas to go fishing. Really? And I feel like 
you've got this guy who spends the entire year on this little island off the coast of Spain in Mallorca with just his family where he like is only doing things he wants to do. He's never faced with like, I, I can't imagine there's a situation in Don Mallorca where there's something that he doesn't want to do. <laughs> Maybe occasionally his wife is like, hey, you cook dinner tonight. Yeah, Although they yeah, definitely yeah. have like chefs who are making lots of amazing paella, amazing paella. And like exactly what <laughs> Nadal probably is really, really specific. If, if we learned anything about him, He's incredibly specific. Food taste. Food taste. Just the way he used to do his hair. Like, this guy knows exactly what he's eating every day for the next, like, at least month and a half, you think? Yeah. yeah. Maybe, like, nine weeks. Yeah. And so then you've got Nadal. He's like, uh, I was in Mallorca all year. I have my tournament. I need to go relax. I'm going to go to the Bahamas and, like, uh, I need just, like, a quiet time to just, like, go fishing. But this, is, this, is, this is reminding me of, if you haven't checked out the Strokes of Genius documentary on Tennis Channel. It's about the Nadal Federer Wimbledon match. Uh-huh. Tony Nadal talks a lot about this kind of Nadal's this is Uncle mentality. Tony yeah, Nadal. Un- un- Uncle Tony Nadal, who's now no longer his coach, talks a lot about Nadal's mentality. One line he says is that Rafa doesn't think of himself. Rafa loves fishing. <laughs> yeah, that. But he also, also says for whatever reason, whenever I think about, I imagine him with a wooden with. Like the fishing rod you make at camp when it's wood and then you put a string on the end? Yeah, super basic. It's like the same one he used when he He's was He's just kind of get back to the but, earth. But the Tony Nadal kind of guy line was that Rafa doesn't think of himself as, you know, some extraordinary person. He's just, you know, I he plays tennis. A guy who plays the tennis. He lives in Mallorca. He's a family man and he likes that's fishing. It. He's got some hobbies. That's it. Interesting because he obviously is extraordinary. But, uh, all right, so Djokovic match. Um, not, I mean, you know, exp- exp- I was hoping for a better match, but I guess it shouldn't be that Nish- surprised because the head-to-head is awful. Djokovic well, owns it was 14-2 going in. 14-2 going in. Djokovic completely owns him. Um, but Nishikori Gil- did beat him at the U.S. Open several years ago. Several years ago, um, which is fair. But this was just a complete one-sided Novak. Not much to get into. Nishikori had does, a couple moments. How does someone but- like Nishikori come into the tournament where he, or sorry, coming to this match, he's just beaten Marin Cilic, who is someone that can beat literally any player in the world. I think one 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 reason maybe is that Djokovic, uh, sorry, Nishikori serve, definitely his weakness. Djokovic, best returner. So Nishikori's first serve is not a big serve. So Djokovic is going to get it back. He's going to go up the line. Second serve is going to go even bigger. I think it puts pressure on him. Um... But how did, how did Nishikori's forehand is so... Like, he's... No, I think Nishikori is a down. really explosive player. I think with someone like Djokovic who moves you around so much and hits deep balls and makes you kind of... It, it kind of forces you to, you know, try to even attempt dictating against him. I think that firepower starts to... I, know, I think Djokovic... I think Nishikori is really good firepower when he's moving kind of side to side and he's really explosive and, you know, just going back and forth. I think Djokovic throws his whole balance off. And something he just can't really get. He did, I mean, at, at any point in the match, he didn't really seem that comfortable. Mm-hmm. A couple points, maybe three all. He had a couple break chances, but just didn't really seem like he was there. I think just, something Djokovic does just makes him uncomfortable. Um, and, and one thing I'm curious: Djokovic looked really good Wait, in this match. Curious or curious? Both. Curious. Curious. One thing corner. you're curious one about. Thing I'm, one thing I'm really curious about is Djokovic looked really strong in this match. But I wonder, was he really that challenged in this match? Like so how, how I'm going to come we, back to that quick. How much can we draw about how well he's playing from this match, given that he's owned Nishikori so much? I don't know. All right, I was going to bring in the curious corner. We're going to come back to that in a second. So, the sorry, say the question again. The question is, I, I'm wondering, Djokovic looked really good against this match, but it's, uh-huh. it's difficult to kind of 
gather how much, how well is he really playing, given that he's owned Nishikori so much. I mean, he didn't look uncomfortable at all in this match. So, mm-hmm. But this I'm, is also the second straight tournament where Djokovic comes in playing sort of weird, having a weird year going into sketch. Wimbledon, yeah. being kind of sketchy, uh, seems like affected by the elements, has mental lapses, you're not really sure what's going on, gets to Wimbledon, wins Wimbledon. Yeah. Comes in the U.S. Open. Again, sort of sketchy. We're like, is he going to lose? Doesn't lose. Comes into the the semis. Plays Nishikori. Just owns it. And just, it's a, a, a route. So one-sided. And so, we're not sure, like, his Instagram has been pretty normal. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty tapered. Do you know what his most recent post was? Uh, I think it was him, it looks like he was like the Upper East Side or something with his son. I mean, he's something, like, something like that. Like, Dear Alex and Kabir, please stop <laughs> following. Yeah, stop criticizing my Instagram posts when I'm traveling in the uh, Grand Canyon. Wait, we got we got some intel. It's him with a fist pump, roaring. Caption: Roaring for my sport, my wife and kids, my whole family, my people. Love to everyone. Feels good to be back. Strong post. It's pretty good. Strong post. Strong the post. one thing I think is clear though. Way is less sketch. He has a complex about the U.S. Open and fans in general not loving him as much as Federer and Nadal. Fair. Like there's there was this moment in the match where he was trying to get people pumped up, and it really felt like. There was like some kind of there was some, there was some history. There was some history behind that. Yeah, like, there was yeah. a lot there, which I feel like unconfirmed, but I feel like Novak definitely has a sports psychologist that's like working with him on some of these issues. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like uh, Novak, he's or like, it's just Kukushkin. Kukushkin <laughs> is the sports psychologist. Yeah, it's true, Professor Kukushkin. Professor I mean, Kukushkin. All right, but let's, all right, let's quick uh, sidebar for the Kyrgios corner. Uh, Nick Kyrgios, as far as we know, is in the Bahamas right now playing basketball. Yeah. Actually, wow. yeah. Uh, a little stressed out from the tournament. Now he's back in the Bahamas playing some basketball and just kind of coming back to what he knows best. The guy. Um, looking forward to – will he qualify for the Masters? Um, it's going to be tough. He's going to have to have a really strong, you know, two months, and players ranked between one and eight are going to have to have – they're going to have to lose a lot of points. Because he's I, I dropped like – Yeah, I don't see it happening. Um, okay. But More to come from Kyrgios. So we want to do rumors quick... are that he's coming on the pod, but we want to yeah rumors are rumors are. Um, um, all right. So we do a little finals preview. Now? A little finals preview. All right. So Djokovic Del Potro head to head. Djokovic obviously winning. They played three times in 2017. I don't think those are that indicative of what tomorrow's match is going to be like. But because... what is the head to head? Just. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't remember the head-to-head, but it's 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 pretty it's, decisive. It's Joker. very decisively in Djokovic's favor. But the reason I don't think last year's matches are that indicative of what tomorrow is going to look like is because since 2016, when Del Potro kind of started to make this comeback at the Olympics, and I think that's the last time he beat Djokovic was at the 2016 Olympics, right? Seven six seven six. Um, that's when he started to make his comeback. 2017 was all about. How can he hit the backhand? How often can he hit it? Can he actually? You say he, you mean Del Potro? Yeah. How often could Del Potro come over the ball like he used to when he won the Open? He's had three wrist surgeries, so that's kind of been the weakness of his game. Can he actually drive to the ball, or can he just? Even last year, I think one of the reasons why Nadal beat him pretty easily was he just didn't really have a backhand that he could dictate points with. This year, he's hitting the backhand pretty big. I think that's going to be a big. Um, area maybe to 
watch tomorrow, see, see how comfortable he is hitting. So I think if he's hitting the backhand well, it's going to be a more interesting match. Um, what about – does – so we know that Djokovic had uh, some issues with his elbow. Yeah. And now his serve has lost – like a decent amount of velocity from earlier in his so career. Like between, Maybe between, 10 or so miles an hour. Between 6 and 12. Between 6 and 10 miles an hour. Right now, yeah. it's rare we see him cross 120 miles an hour on the serve. Yeah. He used to, I think, hit 130 probably. Like 126. Okay, which is, I think, yeah. a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're, they already said this year the U.S. Open surface is slowed down. And by yeah. slowed down, we mean when they make the surface, they, they say they add sand or something gritty to it that makes the ball move slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and a slower ball for a guy like Del Potro, where the ball's going to sit up and he's going to be probably more much more effective as a returner. Pretty big backswings, gives him more time to sit up and really crush the ball. Playing a heavy hitter like Del Potro, do you think Djokovic's serve not being as much of a weapon as it was early in, her career, in his career, or do you think that's going to play an issue? I don't know. It's not like Del Potro is some unreal returner that's now going to mm-hmm. have some amazing opportunity to attack his serves. I think it's definitely. I think at this level of the game, any reduction in speed in your serve is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, especially top. I mean, Del Potro number three in the world. He's going to look to attack. So yeah, I think I think it could affect. I don't know if he's. I I don't think it's enough. I don't think Djokovic is going to lose the match because of the serve. Um, I think the way I think Del Potro needs to win this match is. Djokovic is all, he's the best return in the game. He's going Djokovic to is the best, best return in the game right now. Going like, to get a lot of balls back. Better than like uh, yeah, I guess he's better than Nishikori, right? Yeah, I think I think he covers the line better. I'm gonna go Diminor. Diminor, pretty good, but uh, he's a cheeky returner. Let's see how long he can keep it up. All right. Um, one thing, if you if you don't watch that much tennis, one thing everyone should appreciate with Novak Djokovic is his backhand on the line. Yeah, it's unreal. And it's also like this probably one of the sneakiest shots in the game. Yeah. Because he kind of like last minute drops he, his he hands or something, holds the ball on his racket, and attacks. then and then just sneaks like beautiful backhands down the line. Yeah. That's something to look, to look so out for. So I think tomorrow, Del Potro, I think the key is the one-two punch. Big serves up the line, out wide, really look to attack with the forehand. Um I think also just a quick point about Del Potro and maybe player development, interesting point. Um, it's pretty interesting what you can see now with the advanced IBM statistics. It's on the U.S. Open. You can see Shout the, out IBM. Shout out I, IBM, thinking about giving us a sponsorship. Um, you can see the different serve trajectories and the kind of the angle that it comes off the rack. And you can see, think about Del Potro. He hits big serves up the middle and out wide flat. He doesn't use the spinning out wide on the deuce side or the big kick spinning out wide on the ad side at all. So I feel like when you think about, I think one of the things that's so interesting about tennis is that it's not at all linear sport. You don't see players you know, start their careers and end their careers with the same tools. They always grow. Nadal's changed his service motion three times. He used to have... And it also added tons of velocity to ton, So he used to be... I mean, even when he won French Open the first couple of times, he started points with his serve. It was just... Struggling to break 100 str- miles an hour. Yeah, struggling. I mean, yeah. Just a spinny serve that was just used to start points. Now he's got a big first serve. He gets up to sometimes 127. He hits aces. It's a weapon. Del Potro, when I try, he's three in the world right now. I try to think, you know, how could he get even higher? Winning more slams, maybe getting to two, maybe getting to one. I think maybe developing that one, maybe, again, tech, really technical thing. He's got a really high ball toss. Maybe 
boring it Kabir a little bit. Kabir hates the high ball toss. Every time we play, he tells me my ball toss is too high. You want to get the curio style where you hit it pop gun motion. It comes up, you don't let it drop too much, hit it right there. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm in agreement with Brad Gilbert on this topic. But maybe lower the ball toss a little bit, start using the spin serves a little more, spinning out wide on the deuce side, coming in, sets up the one-two punch even more. Thing with DePotro, he can do long rallies, but he's not going to win matches by playing rallies that are 10, 15, 20 balls. He wants to play short points, so I think maybe using the serve. He wants to set up the forehand. Yeah, use the serve more to set up even bigger forehands, especially now since maybe even though his backhand is better than it was pre-injury, uh, than it was around immediate injury, given that his backhand maybe isn't as much of a strength, maybe look for more chances to create opportunity with the forehand. I think the next step is what is that. How is Djokovic going to try and break him down, though? What do you think he's looking for? Ah, I think he's just... It's tough. I mean, it's it's a tough matchup. I'm. Um, I think he's just got to play solid. I mean, return, focus on his return, um, attack the backhand. It's still the weakness, even if he's hitting over the ball. The mm-hmm. Pocho still end of the day is going to have a better um, forehand. Um, he has been slicing more post injury. Maybe this you know attack, attack the backhand corner. Um, maybe look to come in. I mean, it's going to be a tough match. Again, Del Potro like Osaka. He's lost one set. He's won six matches and, he, and one his, set. His last match, Nadal retired, so he's fresh. And he's he's really fresh. But um, all right, in terms so, of Del Potro, look, I, I think he's I think he's going to pull this off. I think he's now going to win a second slam. Nine years later than his first one. This is a pretty so last slam being two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Then that injury took him out for a couple of years. So this is this is huge for him. I think this is this is the moment for him to win. The slam. Maybe. And again, we talked about how Djokovic has trouble getting the crowd behind him, whereas Del Potro is adored in New York. Yeah, he's has a it really looks like you're in Argentina at his matches. Amazing fan base here. Um, it's the only. It's, it's, like it's the really, only tennis match right now where you hear people consistently cheering the person's name, Del Potro. Del Potro. Yeah, and things. Obviously, Djokovic is great. People love him, but it's really tough to not get behind Del Potro. Great guy. A great guy. It's just, it's just tough to not want him to win. I, I think, and look, Djokovic has been sketched, right? When he starts losing, he kind of loses focus a bit. Crowd goes the other way. He also occasionally he misses the forehand, does this weird like dancey thing. He did it last match. Oh yeah, he does it a lot. Yeah, he you know, misses the forehand and does this kind of mocking way, kind of mocking his own stroke. Um, similar, about, similar to the Andre Rublev, but Rublev rips his shirt off, which is really funny. Just rips his shirt. Djokovic has done the full shirt rip. Yeah, he's done it. Yeah, but what about but also? But I think first set is critical. If this match goes five, Djokovic so wait, will win. The, okay, Kabir, what is the the call? What's your call for the match? How this many is, sets? This is wins? really, uh, it's really tough. Um, okay, so Del Potro in four or Djokovic in five? So I have to pick one. I got to pick one, right? I'm going Del Potro in 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 four. Del Potro in four. It, you heard it, it here first. I'm going uh, going against the stats of the last three matches of Djokovic winning, but I just I really think losing one set going into final is. That says a lot. Now, can you talk about, to, to finish up, can we talk about how good you think Del Potro is kind of within this era of tennis players? Because he's, he's a hard player to evaluate because of injury. Yeah. I th- I when think, he's been good, he's been essentially as good as anyone, it feels like. I think when he's on, he can beat anyone. I think, I, I, I really do think, Nadal has unbelievable massive forehand I think even more than Nadal's forehand I think when Deportos forehand is on it's the most lethal shot in the sport it's devastating the way he hits that ball cross court and up the line is unreal um, 
I think it's. I think if he, I think if he didn't have that injury, he would have had a few more slams. The way he played, the form he had in '09, was '09 pretty unprecedented. Yeah. Um. All right. Anything else we want to touch upon before we finish? I think you. I think you mentioned something about Defoto's necklace. So we've seen a lot of throughout the tournament. You see this always, but I. I, I think after seeing Zverev, particularly this year, because he wears more than one necklace. It looks like it's and the one he wears is. Kind of a heavy one. I don't big. know how he wears Del Po's it. got a little necklace. I'm not entirely sure. A lot of times it's like a cross or something. Del Potro's, I'm not sure what he's wearing. But I feel like it's hard to imagine that there's not like one point in the match. About to hit a forehand. Necklace gets in the way a little bit. But we haven't seen it happen yet. Any thoughts on the necklace? Uh, not, I didn't even really thought about it. I feel like his is small enough. But it's fine. I've like, been thinking a lot about I feel like it's more. I feel like it's more Zverev. I've said it before. Zverev. I think next step for him, go with the short hair. Zverev with the short hair. Go with yep. the short hair. So what do you think Zverev – how do you think Zverev cutting his hair will affect his game? Uh, a little more discipline in his game. I think I feel like I feel like if you're going to have Lendl as a coach, you can't have this long California flowy hair. you got to have – You can't have the sunshine. Military buzz cut. I think he's got to go to one of right? the Bukharin barbershops. Oh, on 72nd Street. Maybe 72nd Street. They're all over the city. Um, all right. That's it for tonight. We will talk to you – after the men's final. Very excited for the final. Excited for the final. Hope you all watch. And uh, shout out Jared. Thank you, Jared. Jared, some final words for the people? <laughs> no, sorry. No words. <laughs> no words. You heard it here. No words. No words. All right. Till next time. Until next time. Cheeky Volley. Peter Bloomberg. Good night. Look, I found her. Damn. Red coat. Look, I found her. Look, I found her. Red coat. Look, I found her. Look, I found her. Damn. Red coat. Look, I found her.